Well, my name is Eric. I'm the youth pastor here, and you've seen a lot of young people around the service this morning. This is uh, every September, the first Sunday is Youth Sunday, so mark your calendars for next year. And as we reach our final song in in the Songs for the Way Home series, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 134. If you don't have a Bible, please put up your hand, and our ushers will get you one as quickly as we can. They're bringing them down the aisles right now. I got one in the second row. Second row on that side, just keep your hand up uncomfortably long and we'll get you taken care of. Interesting time and and day that we're in, as Derek led us in a prayer for the people of Houston, I heard my mom called me because there was an executive order made that September 3rd would be a national day of prayer specifically to pray for the victims and the emergency personnel in the Houston, Louisiana area. So keep that in mind. Keep that in our collective conscience as we, as we uh, move comfortably through this service. There's people who are hurting. And on a brighter note, we have, a, we have a family member with us today who's turning 91 today, I heard. Would you slip your arm up? Don't keep it a secret. There he is right here. 91 years young. All right. Psalm 134 is sort of an exclamation point on top of all these passages we've studied so far this summer. And really, there are only 14 songs, but they're 14 out of 150 psalms. And interestingly enough, it seems that most all the 150 psalms are generally about the same thing, which is happiness, or to say it more formally, blessedness. We might say that blessedness or happiness is the fruit of a life that's built around God. And the whole Psalms revolve around this idea of being blessed. So if you're taking notes, you could uh, say it this way. Being blessed is the overflow of goodness that results from rearranging your life around the one who gave you life and extends to you new life. Do you want that? Because it's available. In fact, Psalm 1-1 opens right out of the gate with the word blessed. It then gets used more than 50 more times, and it seems that this whole book and this chapter today centers around the idea of spiritual blessing. If you grab your Bible and just open to the middle, chances are you might open to the Psalms, which is kind of fitting because the Psalms are central to our lives if we're honest about what they're really like. The Psalms address people in need. The Psalms speak to people who are sick. The Psalms address people who are waiting for the pain to stop. The Psalm acknowledge the needs of the poor, the needs of those in prison, the needs of people who are in exile or who feel like they're in exile. The Psalms doesn't ignore people who are facing danger, and it gives hope and comfort to people who are facing floods. And to those people facing persecution or death, the psalm speaks blessing even when all appears lost. So if you've dodged all those bullets and you find yourself, you're just smitten with joy and you're pain-free, the psalm speaks to you too, pointing you towards the source of your blessing and back towards you redistributing your blessing to other people. I like to think about the book of Psalms like a gentle but firm hand on the back of a sinner And along with that gentle, firm hand is a soft, steady voice that preaches God's mercy over sinners, reminding us that forgiveness is available. The Psalms is really a book for kids, you might say. 
It's a book for the children of God that leads them towards a deeper maturity with their father. It's also, we don't want to forget, it's also a proclamation of God's perfect law that declares blessing on all those who will keep God's law. Let's look at our passage today. Now praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand in the Lord's house at night. Lift up your hands in the holy place and praise the Lord. May the Lord, maker of heaven and earth, bless you from Zion. Now this particular psalm addresses a specific group of people, that is the Levites. They were the tribe of Israel who had been assigned the priestly role that was tied directly to caring for the temple. The Levites were assigned to the temple in the same way that the Orange County Sheriff's Department is assigned to our court system. I know that because I had jury duty five days this week. So the the sheriffs and the Levites, they opened and closed. They protected. They helped shape its structure and its operation on a day-to-day basis. The Levites helped guide the people in their act of worshiping God. Now, some of you in the room are very relieved that this psalm is addressed to the Levites and not specifically to you, because you are thinking that you might now have the conviction of standing all night in church with your hands raised. (laughs) Well, we're going to notice something that this psalm, it, it is addressed to the Levites, but what you and I have, if you're a follower of Christ, is we have a new vantage point from which to see this. We need to read this psalm through a lens of a new type of priest that's not a Levite. In Revelation 1, we read this. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God God and Father, the glory and dominion are his forever and ever. And in 1 Peter 2, we read, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So yes, we are not Levites. You're off the hook. But we have a lot to take from this chapter. If you're a follower of Jesus, though, you've been bought back, rescued, and given a new status. And one of those statuses is that you're, a royal, you're part of a royal priesthood. So let's read this one more time, knowing that you are included in this passage. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand in the Lord's house at night. Lift up your hands in the holy place and praise the Lord. May the Lord, maker of heaven and earth, bless you from Zion. So in this little brief passage, we're going to ask and answer three little questions that I pray that our church would get enriched by and that you would be encouraged by, not just encouraged where you sit today, but also encouraged to kind of spring out of your seat with action to bless the larger family here, because that's how blessing's supposed to work. So with our text today, we'll ask three questions. First off, we'll answer or ask, who should worship? Who should worship? Next, we're going to answer, how should they worship? And next, we're going to ask, what blessings will result from a life of worship? Who should worship, how should they worship, and what blessings will result from a life of worship? Now, I couldn't avoid this. Talking about all this worship stuff, this conversation is totally alien to the world we live in today. God, in my estimation, has never been further from our nation's conscience. Never has the the idea of a human being worshiping their creator been something so spoken against. Yet, we know that every human being worships something, Even people who don't go to church, who don't believe in God, those people worship things. It may not be the God who made them, 
but they worship things in the same way, with equal passion and greater commitment. And as I've mentioned before, whatever we find our deepest meaning in, we worship that thing. Whatever we feel like we can't do life without, we worship that thing. Jesus knew this about us. He knew that we would be tempted to look at temporary treasures in this life and to look at them as if they're the ultimate things. So he gave us a warning. We read in Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? So what we see is that true blessing begins in the, in the life of a person when they recognize that their true worth is found in worshiping and treasuring Christ over everything. The blessing starts when you see that even, when you see that even what you need to give up is worth it because of what you get in exchange. So let's ask, who, who, should, who should worship? And the answer is simple, all you servants. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand in the Lord's house at night. See, in the Old Testament time, the temple, as we've talked about, had appointed worshipers, designated priests whose job it was to carry out the work and proclaim the worship and lead the people. But now, because of Christ, anyone who's been set free from sin, anyone who's pulled, been pulled from the darkness of sin and forgiven with the blood of Jesus has been made a priest. You've been made part of a holy nation. You've been set apart for something special for the worship of God. So I want you to recognize something, that if you are a Christian today, that yes, you were saved, you got saved, you were saved individually, but you weren't saved by yourself. You're saved instead into a family of saved ones, rescued ones, you, as a disciple of Jesus, are redeemed into the family of God and are designed specifically to fit into this family of God. I saw a bumper sticker this week with a paw print on it, and it read, Dogs are the only family you can choose. That was about my reaction, too. I thought, okay, that's, I'll, I'll use it on my sermon because it made me think about family. Sometimes we wish we could choose our own families, we all thought that once or twice as teenagers. But here's what I want you to think. The church of Christ is the only family you can have that's chosen by God. And anyone can be a part of that family. Look at what Paul wrote in Romans 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I like how the King James puts it. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The point is this. Anyone can get in. If you get in through Christ, if you're a Christ follower, you get fit into the family of God known as the church. So write this down. The fit of God's worshipers together is communal and life-giving. The fit of God's worshipers together is communal and life-giving. You see, when God saves you, he saves you into a community of saved ones. He calls you to worship in that community regularly and he gifts you to build up or to edify that body. Again, you were saved individually, but you're not saved by yourself. 
This led the writer of Hebrews to say, let us not be concerned about one another, let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the point is Christians are supposed to meet regularly and the purpose is to fit together the worship of God as a family and to encourage each other, which is really difficult to do from a golf course or a beach, or your lazy boy. Paul had a big opinion on this. He said in Romans 12, For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts don't have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the standard of one's faith. If service, in service. If teaching, in teaching. If in, if in exhorting, in exhortation. Giving, with generosity. Leading, with diligence. Showing mercy, with cheerfulness. God fits us together into a worshiping community designed, like the Father himself, to bless and to give life to others. We are fit together because we are members of one another through Christ. So that's who should worship. Now, how should they worship is the question. Now, this can be tricky because some people, depending on your background, when we read, lift up your hands in the holy place and praise the Lord, chills run up their spine. God commanded the Levites to lift their hands, and so you're thinking, I'm off the hook, aren't I? So where do we stand on this? We all come from different backgrounds, right? If you grew up in church like I did, that church's worship service took on a specific form. Some of you grew up in churches with ties. Some of you grew up in churches with t-shirts. Some of you are mortified that I'm not wearing a sport coat. I don't own a sport coat. Some of you have been to churches where there's an organ. Some of you only had a guitar. Some of you were in churches where people praying out loud was a common occurrence. Others of, others of you are accustomed to a church where there's long periods of silence. Now, the church that I grew up in, lifted hands were, how do, you, how do I put this? They were an unspoken no-no. You could lift your hands in worship, but you probably wouldn't come back. It was kind of a way of people saying, we don't do that here. And some of you have grown up around a place where if you didn't raise your hands, it was, it was weird. But is it a big deal? Well, Paul said in, to, to when he wrote to Timothy, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. So now the women are like, okay, I'm off the hook now. Okay, good. I had a woman come up for, after the last service and say, Eric, thank you. I, I raised my hands today in the last song, but really quietly, she said. It appears that it's been kind of a big deal for many people throughout their life, lifting hands, but I don't want us to overthink it. It's not really complex. Lifted hands are, it's almost like an involuntary response in certain times in life, right? When we see something that stirs us, when we see something that transcends the normal, if you're old enough to remember Michael Jordan dunking a basketball and jumping at the free throw line, it was pretty amazing, and the whole room lit up. But I, I thought of a, a, a list of things 
that people might see or encounter that would just might make them put their hands up. A sunrise over the Grand Canyon. Whoa, there's no words for it. Honey, come look at this. Look at this majesty. A newborn baby takes its first breast. Can you believe it? Moms and grandmas are staggering around hugging each other. An 11-year-old hits a home run. And mom, dad, and everyone that loves them and the umpire raise their hands. A dad whose kid finally is balancing on their own pushes him as, the, as he pedals away and, and the kid gets it and dad celebrates. A 16-year-old girl running in a cross-country race, running faster than she's ever run before and her parents can't not raise their hands. A surfer tucks under the lip of a wave and exits to daylight and he can't keep his arms down. A baby takes its first steps. And as they look at their parents screaming and their hands go up, the baby's hands go up, not sure why, causing them to fall over. <laughs> a doctor says you're cancer-free. A Marine steps off a plane on home turf again, and everyone that loves them, their hands go up. No one's feeling, oh, is this okay if I put my hands up? Bob's home. Oh, I better keep my hands down. How about a hole in one? What about when a musician is serenading a stadium of 20,000 people? What are the first 60 rows doing? Their hands are up, and not because they were told to. Something's happening that's causing their hearts to cause their arms to go up. Last on this list, how about a savior, a sinless savior, laying down his life on behalf of sinners? Might that make our arms go up in spite of what the people in the row behind you might think of you? All these situations, and many more that you thought of that I didn't mention, they can kind of reach into our soul and they knock on the part of us that knows we're made for more than this. It knocks on the part of us that knows we're made by a creator, that knows that the great greatness that we're witnessing, it's just a shadow. It's a glimpse of who is truly great, of who is the greatest of all of who is ultimate over everything and everyone. But lifted hands aren't a life or death thing. They can reflect what's going on in your hearts, but it might not. You might have broken your collarbones last week. You don't have to lift your hands. It's okay. But I want you to see something, that the form of our worship will be informed by the object of our worship. The form of our worship will be informed by the object of our worship. This may mean lifted hands at times, because who we worship is better than anything or anyone else. This may mean standing in the presence of greatness. It might even mean kneeling in humility. It might be just being quiet. James Boyce, the theologian pastor, in his commentary on the Psalms, he noted five different ways that God revealed himself to people. And I thought that this list of five things could help us form how we worship by examining more closely who we are worshiping. The first thing on his list was that our God is personal, not an abstract philosophy or idea. Our God's personal. He's not abstract or philosoph philosophical. In fact, he revealed himself to Moses by speaking to him. So what this can show us is that we are a group of redeemed people who gather for worship. Our gathering shouldn't be abstract or vague either. Instead, our worship meetings will be formed around the person and the work of God in Christ. 
Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians, he said, all things in your worship services, all things should be done decently and in order. Paul was concerned that our gatherings would not be filled with confusion or chaos, but instead would reflect the orderliness of our Creator. The second thing on the list is that God is self-existent. Nothing caused Him or brought Him into being. So as a group of redeemed people, we gather for worship. Our gatherings are going to have the Lord as supreme over everything, with His name and His glory primary for everyone who's there. When Paul preached to, on Mars Hill, his outdoor sermon, I want to remind you what he preached from Acts 17. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he's made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. Our very being has its origin in God. Our redemption has its origin in God. So our lives and our gathering will be shaped around who our God is, not around any current idea or current popular notion. Third on the list is that God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need the angels. He doesn't need us. We can't contribute anything to him that he, that he needs. So this means that as a group of people bought back by God, we will gather for worship, and our gatherings will be informed by our dependence on God and our gratefulness for his provision in, in, in our lives. Fourth, God is eternal. He has always been, and he will always be. This means that our gatherings will remind us how we are made for eternity and how our God has offered to rescue us for all eternity and to protect us from being separated from him. Last on his list is that God is unchangeable. He never differs from himself. What he is today, he will be tomorrow. So as a group of redeemed people who gather for worship, our gatherings will be formed around the truths that do not change no matter the year, and no matter how popular. So at times, things will get repetitive. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> the form of our worship will be informed by the object of our worship. This troubles some people that the Christian church takes its gatherings so seriously. A friend of mine likes to post pictures of his weekend camping trips on Instagram, and he uses the hashtag Sunday worship. You might pull that up on the screen. There he is, camping. He calls that his Sunday worship. He's not a Christian, but he calls that his Sunday worship. Here's the thing. That's beautiful, no doubt. That's beautiful. Here's the thing. That worship service is not like this one, because we worship the one who created that, and we're together, and that makes it more serious. But how serious? How serious should the form of your worship take? I remember when my wife and I began mountain biking together in about the year 2000. We did it because it was fun, and 
we like fun, I guess. And so the form of our activity was pretty simple. Ride some dirt trails, meet some friends, take some pictures, see new things, just have fun. But about five years in, we got the bug to race our mountain bikes up bigger mountains, longer distances, and start doing 50-mile races, 100-mile races, etc. Well, it turns out, to prepare well for that sort of thing, you have to prepare well. So the form of our relationship with the bicycle changed. It went from casual to intense, from relaxed to formal. We went from three group rides a week for maybe a total of four hours to 14 to 16 hours a week of abusing our muscles and our heartbeats, losing gallons of sweat, following a specific plan. See, the form of our training changed when the object of our goal changed. If you've come to life in Christ, the object of your life has changed. The object of your worship has changed. And with that, how and what you worship will change. Our worship should have tenacity and a commitment that reflects our Savior. If today you're in this room and you're not yet a follower of Christ, you're still considering the cost of what it would be to follow Christ, I want you to recognize the treasure of Christ that causes every earthly thing you think is valuable to pale in comparison. So finally, today we're going to ask, what blessings will result from the life of worship? David Mathis is the author and executive editor of DesiringGod.org. He wrote something about a life of worship that I want to share with you. He said, The reason corporate worship may be the single most important Christian habit and our greatest weapon in the fight for joy is because like no other single habit, Corporate worship combines all three essential principles of God's ongoing supply of grace for the Christian. Hearing his word, having his ear, and belonging to his body in the fellowship of the church. So with that, I want you to see something this morning. That the function of our worship will be established by what builds up and blesses the body. The function of our worship will be established by what builds up and blesses the body. The function of our meeting is not going to be framed around making people happy. It's not going to be built on the personal preference of our tithers. It's built upon what will edify and build up the community of believers. This means something very specific. The function of our worship will be marked by cultivation versus spontaneity. Now, spontaneity, we're not chucking it out the window, but it's going to take a back seat to what is carefully and purposefully cultivated over time based on what Scripture has indicated will strengthen the body. Now praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand in the Lord's house at night. Lift up your hands in the holy place and praise the Lord. May the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, bless you from Zion. We will carefully, here at South Shores, cultivate a worshipful life, ordered and arranged around the ruler of the universe, and the word that he's given us. And in that, we're going to find a lot of blessings. God will pour out his blessing through the church using his word. And I'll give you just a couple ways that he blesses us. This list is on your, your handout as well. Number one, the church and his word, it, it, it comforts and encourages little children. It strengthens young men. It gives respect to women. It sanctifies and cleanses all who take part in it. It protects the widows. It honors the elderly. It exalts the weak as necessary. And it offers eternal life to 
everyone. So the fit and of God's worshipers together is communal and life-giving. The form of our worship will be informed by the object of our worship, and the function of our worship will be established by what builds up and blesses the body. Would you pray? Jesus, thank you for this, this reminder that every saved person is called to be a member of the body of Christ. Remind us, Lord, that we are members of one another, that while we are saved individually, we're not saved by ourselves, and we are called to be a ministering, active servant of the body of Christ. I pray for anyone in this room who feels like they don't matter to the church, that they are insignificant, I pray you would remind them that they are necessary to us. And for the strong people in this room, I pray that you would give them more strength that they might bear the burdens of others. And Lord, as our country is hurting in ways physical and spiritual, I pray you would heal us, Lord. And I pray that this church will be filled with servants who will serve this body, but also serve our nation, starting in their own homes and in neighborhoods and bring the grace of God to bear in a hurting world. Turn our hearts to you this morning even further. In Jesus' name, amen.